0: turn in the Word of God to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We have been for a couple of years having a family fellowship on Friday evenings, once a month, and so our our plan is to alternate as things work out with the schedule, and to have maybe the Singspiration Fellowship, which is more church-wide, and everyone is invited to come along here at the church, and then have the family-focused fellowship the other month. So that's the plan at this stage. We'll just gauge how things go with that. Another announcement that I made on Wednesday, uh, for those who weren't there, we have uh, we had the news of the call being issued from the Cloverdale congregation, which is just outside Vancouver. They issued a call to uh, Andrew Fitton and... Uh, we wait to see the, what happens there, how that falls out. But that's an answer to prayer. God uh, seeming to provide a man for the work in Cloverdale in British Columbia. So we're encouraged by that news. Pray for Andrew Fitton and for his wife Hannah as they seek the mind of God and and determine what the Lord would have for them to do there. A couple presently in the Calgary congregation. As I said on Wednesday, Andrew's from Northern Ireland. And we, we studied together in the college. And uh, it's, been, it's just encouraging to see this development. Uh, he, why is he in Calgary? He married a girl from Calgary and has been stuck there ever since, uh, wanting to figure out what the Lord's will is for them. And he has opened up this door, it would seem. So do pray for Andrew Fitton and for Hannah Fitton at this time. Hebrews 4. We return to Hebrews this morning, and I want to read again the opening 11 verses. Hebrews 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not have afterward then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God, for he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from His. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Amen. Ending our reading at the 11th verse. Let's pray, beloved. God, we ask for Your help in Your Word. We pray for light and understanding and to receive the profit for which it was intended. We are weak, we are frail, and we need to hear from God. We pray that You will give us ears to hear, and You will give us a desire not only to be hearers of the Word, that's one thing, but to be doers of the Word is another. And So we pray for grace to both hear and to do. We ask for grace to build our house upon a rock, and we pray that Your Spirit will be with us, enabling us. So again, we confess our weakness and frailty, both the weakness of the preacher, the weakness of the listener. And we simply throw ourselves upon your mercy and say, Lord, help us as a people. Come to us, give power and understanding and build your church through the means you've appointed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come once again to the portion that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Hebrews chapter 4. And what I want to do this morning, beloved, with the Lord's help is just focus in on some practical aspects that I did not detail Last time we were here. The point that I left before you is that there still remains verse nine, "There remains a rest or a Sabbath to the people of God." Now, before I go a little further and give a general review of what we considered, I think important for us just, just to lay it out so you're aware, when it comes to practically living out a Christian life, it has both a positive and a negative aspect to it. We'll see that as we progress. The Lord wants us to receive the full benefit of what He has provided. This is why, for example, no man can serve two masters. You can't do it. You have to be totally devoted to Christ. You have to be giving yourself entirely to Him. If you try to walk a kind of compromise line, you're going to fail. It simply can't be done. And the same is true with regard to aspects of what God has given to us to follow. If we are to receive the full benefit of what He has provided it requires at times a a setting aside or removal from other things so that we can fully enjoy what it is that He provides. And one of the ways we see that is in how we maintain one day in seven, what we call the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day. Now, I I know that we are in a time in which that has been almost entirely set aside. Almost, uh, The church, in many respects, has forgotten what it means to Give one day and seven entirely to God, but in case you might have to escape out early this morning or something else happens, when we come to things like big sporting events, we we, we are not encouraging god 's people to give themselves to this now, I know it 's difficult, and I say to young people that may be into football, and so I, I listen i was I was really, really, really into soccer, really into it, and the World Cup is the biggest not just the biggest soccer event of, of the entire calendar, as it were, but the biggest sporting event in the world, perhaps. I don't know if, where it comes in terms of with the Olympics, but perhaps the largest and most keenly watched event. And the final, the final's on a Sunday. And I, I well remember when I was, I was converted in 2002, May... And that was that happened to be every four years you have the World Cup, and that happened to be the year in which there was the the soccer World Cup. And I'm like a new Christian, realizing like I, I can't <laughs> I'm following the whole the whole thing insofar as I am able, and then it comes to the finale, and it's like no no I can't I can't be watching that I can't be following that. This is the Lord's day. It 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 supersedes everything else. And I don't regret that, I just am saying that to you that it was a challenge for me as a new believer to just see that tension between what I believe God would want me to do and what I had done for the entirety of my, my young life following football or soccer in that way. The Lord's Day is important. In fact, often it is a test of where we really are and our affection for the Lord. And when we find ourselves a attention towards the world and pull towards the world, and the obligations to worship God one day in seven, it's, it's usually functioned as a very helpful uh, thermometer of where we are spiritually. The more difficult it is for us to, to sacrifice whatever we would normally want to give ourselves to for God one day in seven, however difficult that is, it, it, it helps us see how tied to this world we actually are. There's going to come a time when we're not really caring about this. We're going to be perfected and perfectly like our Lord Jesus and in His presence. And we're not going to be lamenting what we're missing out on while being in the presence of God. It won't come into our minds about what we're sacrificing, as it were, or what we're giving up by being before Him. So we want to be weaning ourselves off of these things in terms of their power so that we might fully enjoy what it is to be in the presence of God. Of God, so as we look at, i have just honed in on verse nine again. There remains a rest, and I'm just kind of putting a subtitle, uh, as it were, practical considerations. Practical considerations. But before we look at these, just give a general review that the, the passage before us presents an argument concerning rest. This comes up over and over again: the idea of rest, and the language is somewhat challenging, as much of Hebrews is. But I think with careful consideration, we can get a grasp or a handle on the argument here. The overall temptation, remember, of these people is to depart from Jesus Christ. And they're feeling that pull back into their old, their old uh, Hebrew ways and feeling like they, that's where they, sh- they belong or where they should return. And there are various factors. If you took a poll as to what was motivating them in their thoughts of leaving Christ, it may have been various. It may have been the the financial pressures, economic pressures as it were, or it may have been a feeling of loss with the Jewish community and sacrifices within the family and so on. But the danger that they were facing as they seemed to be departing or showing their departure from the Lord Jesus is that it would leave them without the promised rest that David describes in Psalm 95. That's why it is given in chapter 3 quite at length. There's reference to the 95th Psalm. And as we've covered already, I don't want to go over everything, go back and listen to the previous message. But, but we see how David is saying, well, here's a people, they have a Sabbath, they also have entered into Canaan, and yet there's still a rest that they have to enter in. And they enter in by faith. This is, they, they, they possess it, or they come to the, the gate of it, let's say. The gate of it is Jesus Christ. And without faith, they don't possess it. Observing the day is not going to help them. Being in a certain land is not going to help them. The gate to this rest is Christ. Now, Hebrews then puts a heavy emphasis upon persevering in the faith keep going on, the fact that it's not just a shallow profession, but the proof of your profession will be seen over time. And we're going to come to, we've already seen some of them, but we're going to come to more passages that place this emphasis before us, that if, if you don't persevere, your profession's empty. If you don't keep going on, if you're not always looking on to Jesus, then you've dropped off for a reason. The root of the matter is not So it actually brings a challenge, a challenge to professors, a challenge to those that say they belong to the Lord, constantly putting before them this need to keep going on looking to Christ and resting in Him and depending on Him. We must persevere. And these promises then that are laid up for those that are in Christ will be experienced when we finally enter into a rest that is before us, even the eternal day in heaven. Now, This fact, the fact that there's this future rest, it's not just a a day or a land, or even just possessing Christ in some professed way, is is underlined in verse 11, where where, where Paul is saying that there's a rest that's still to be entered into. Verse 11, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. This labor is, is giving the idea of persevering in the faith. It's going on, laboring on in the faith. You say, Well, salvation's not of works. And I say, Of course it's not of works. But faith works, it must be active. If there's no ongoing faith in Christ, it's because it's dead. Every day you're trusting in Christ, every day you're resting in Christ. It's He that believeth. It's this ongoing believing. The, 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 the evangelical, true, saving faith that God puts in the heart of a sinner is one that keeps on believing no matter what. That it keeps trusting, keeps resting, keeps looking, keeps feasting. It's, it's we come to Christ to, to a well of water that never runs dry, even though we come to it every single day. We are, we, it's expected that we, as it were, labor. We keep going on. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. That we must push into, what's he referring to? He's talking about the first generation that came out of Egypt. And by unbelief, they didn't enter into Canaan. He's saying, keep you laboring on, trusting in God, resting in Christ, until you seize upon and have within your clutches the heavenly Canaan. And don't let up. Until then. Now this is significant because those who oppose the ongoing relevance of the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, do so in part because they say Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And while Christ gives rest to the soul, there remains a practical or physical rest. And we don't experience that until we enter into the heavenly canon. My point last time was that even if the fourth commandment was symbolic, as is argued by some, it's just it's symbolic. It's not moral, it's symbolic. And many of America's most well known preachers would argue this case. Even if that was true, then it has been abolished before the fulfillment. And that's never the pattern. You don't take away the shadow until you have the full substance. And the point of the passage is we are laboring to enter into this heavenly Canaan and we must keep persevering in Christ in order to know and be sure that that is where we are going. And so the substance, the substance is that heavenly Canaan. It is that land that we're looking to enter into whose builder and maker is God. And that, beloved, is where you're headed. And you know this. You know that people profess and go on for a little while, and then they drop off, and then the question is, where are they going? Where are they going? There's no rock-solid guarantee that they're actually going to the place that they said at one time they're going to. They have dropped off. We are to labor, keep going on, making a work, as it were, of our faith. And I, and I say that carefully. It's just like constantly resting in Christ. That's an active thing we're doing. I wake up in the morning. What am I to do? Rest in Christ. Actively give myself to Him. It's not a void. Saving faith doesn't create a void. That means I just am empty and just, well, I made this prayer and then there's just this void in my mind and heart. It puts in me a substance that keeps running to eternal life. Keeps resting in the Son of God. So we keep looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Given that there is a future rest for those that persevere in Christ, Paul argues to these Hebrew believers that there then remains a present sabbatismos. As verse 9. There remaineth therefore a sabbath to the people of God. You see, the sabbath was always something that the people of God had. They saw it as a gift from God. And these Hebrews in part may have been thinking, well, well you know, should we go back to, to adhere to things the way we, way we did before? Maybe part of the argument was that, that you're not a people of God because, but because you have no day that signifies where you're going. I don't know where all the arguments were coming from, those that were attacking these Hebrew believers, but it doesn't take a leap to see it that way. And Paul's arguing, no, no, you you still have a Sabbath. You still have it because there's the substance still to enter into as far as the land is concerned. A.W. Pink, who, uh, for all his faults, uh, was a, a theological giant of the last century. And many, some even here, have been transformed by Pink's writings, especially his book on the sovereignty of God. And when he writes on Hebrews, he, he comes to this passage. He says, quote, The purpose of the Holy Spirit in employing this term, that's the term Sabbath in verse 9. All right, so again, just underline, every time it talks about rest in this passage, it uses another Greek word until you come to verse 9 where it's saying there remains a Sabbath to the people of God. And he says the purpose of the Holy Spirit in employing this term here is not difficult to discover. He was writing to Hebrews, Jews who had professed to become Christians, to have trusted in the Lord Jesus. Their profession of faith involved them in sore trials at the hands of their unbelieving brethren. They denounced them as apostates from the faith of their fathers. They disowned them as the people of God. But as we've said, the apostle here reassures them that now only believers in Christ had any title to be numbered among the people of God. Having renounced Judaism for Christ, the question of the Sabbath must also have exercised them deeply. Here the apostle sets their minds at rest. A suitable point in his epistle had now been reached when this could be brought in. He was speaking of rest, so he informs them that under Christianity also they remaineth there remaineth therefore a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. It was on to say, the word remain signifies to be left after others have withdrawn, to continue unchanged. Here then is a plain positive unequivocal declaration by the Spirit of God there remaineth there for a Sabbath keeping. Nothing could be simpler, nothing less ambiguous. The striking thing is that this statement occurs in the very epistle whose theme is the superiority of Christianity over Judaism, written to those addressed as holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Therefore, it cannot be gainsaid that Hebrews 4.9 refers directly to the Christian Sabbath. Hence, we solemnly and emphatically declare that any man who says there is no Christian Sabbath takes direct issue with the New Testament Scriptures. End quote. And, and that's, that's the position that we hold to. That, that I mean, and, and I'll say this. There are other passages that you can bring a stronger argument from. I'm just taking time to, to deal with this here, to, to lay it out. And I think providentially, given the direction of many churches this very day, in which they will be having their, their Super Bowl aspects to their evening this, this very day. We, we understand the fourth commandment remains. It remains. It's still intact. When Christ was confronted for not adhering to the pharisaical expectations of the Sabbath, he says in Mark two, twenty seven and 28, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now, there are two things to draw from that. First of all, the fourth commandment, some say, well, that was for Israel. But Christ does not say the Sabbath was given to Israel, but to man. It was given to man. This is part of the argument. They keep saying what well, was only given from Exodus 20 on, it's only given to Israel, but it wasn't. It wasn't. The pattern set by God in Genesis 2, not to under to go over everything I said last time. But, but that pattern is there for man to follow. It's expected that man would follow it. It was given to man, not to Israel only. Also, and Greg Banson, he, he notes this uh, in referring to Christ's claim to be Lord of the Sabbath. He says, Christ definitively and positively confirmed the Sabbath. Otherwise, Christ would be grandly proclaiming His Lordship over something which was non-existent. The Sabbath did not pass away with Christ's advent or Messianic work. Until our eternal rest, the weekly Sabbath continues to be lorded by Christ, and is a type of the coming reality. He is lord over something that exists. You know, if you told me uh, I'm lord over, you know, uh, <laughs> some land that doesn't exist, you know, I just chuckle at you. You know, I think you're you're losing it, or there's some kind of punchline coming you know, I'm Lord of this. Or maybe you buy a little piece of the moon. You say, I'm Lord over that piece of the moon. It's like, very good. Yeah, it's not like you can do very much with it. There's, to be Lord over something means there's significance to being Lord over it. It hasn't passed away. It's still in effect. So when we hear from otherwise good men, and I was, I was listening to John MacArthur on this, and uh, I don't mean to be overly critical, but just using him as an, as an example of an opposing position. And he opposes observing the fourth commandment. He says, the rest the New Testament is concerned about is the rest that comes to the soul from hearing the good news preached. End quote. And I heard that little statement. I thought, the rest the, rest the New Testament is concerned about is the rest that comes to the soul from hearing the good news preached. Now, there, there are a couple of things you can say there. First, this very passage says the good news was preached to them as well as unto us. Verse 2, unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. They had the good news preached to them. It's not like this is an exclusive experience in the New Testament era. And secondly, there is a future rest promised to persevering believers that they do not possess until they enter glory. And so that's again verse 11. He just seems to be missing that among other things. All right, so we've seen that this is this general review. I want to take a little time then and consider a gracious regulation. A gracious regulation. God is regulating our lives, isn't He? He's regulating our lives. He's given instruction to you saying, here's how I want you to regulate. Now, He doesn't tell you what to do for your employment, does He? He doesn't say you must be this or must be that. You, you see your skills or you acquire skills, and if it is lawful and doesn't go against any of His laws and commandments, then you can engage in it. But He does govern various aspects of our lives. And one of the arguments against maintaining the fourth commandment is the, 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 the change of the day. Now, I, I'm not going to get into that. I, I'm, I could get into it biblically and historically, but let's just put it this way, because we, we have brothers and sisters across the world that, that don't get to meet on the same day we meet. And sometimes that can trouble people because they think, well, you know, the Nepalese brethren, last I heard, the Nepalese church meets on Saturday because that's the day and generally the whole nation stops. And so that's when the church meets. And some Christians might look at that and say, well, that, that's, a, you know, that's, a, that's a problem. They're not really observing it. But, but the, point, the point is, the morality of the fourth commandment is six days of labor, one day of rest ceasing and celebrating. That's the pattern. If you follow the pattern, you follow the moral aspect. There's a symbolic aspect to, let's say, the last day because God made all things and finished His work, or then the first day of the week because Christ is raised from the dead. There's a symbolic significance to that, but the moral aspect is the pattern. I work I have six days to engage in lawful employment, but one of the days of the week then I am to give wholly in worship to God and being gathered with His people and engaging in holy exercises. So we don't have a problem necessarily with the actual day. And I, I was talking with the, the young people this morning about what, if, what, if, <laughs> what would happen if Chick-fil-A decided that they were going to close on a Monday and open on a Sunday. Well, I, I'd be curious just to see the response, I think a lot of people who don't adhere to the fourth commandment would be up in arms would say this is not fair and i would say well based on what moral problem you know like what what issue would you have with it because you've cast aside the fourth commandment anyway and the point isn't so much that they would be changing the day and changing the pattern as it would be that now they're they're standing in the way of people worshiping god one day and seven It would be a deliberate act that would oppose men from doing what God as creator has called his creation to do. That would make it wrong. The Jews historically were not the best at observing the Sabbath. Sometimes we think that they were, but they were not. Turn to Isaiah 58, Isaiah chapter 58. And there's a lot of practical help in this text if we can just submit our hearts to it. But the, what I want you to go away with, and, and let, me, let me say, this may be really important for parents to get. The Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, whatever you want to call it, is never, was never, should never be a drudgery. Shouldn't. And you shouldn't enter into it like a drudgery, you shouldn't emanate a sense that it's a drudgery, and you should work in whatever lawful way you can to teach your children the blessing of the day so that they look forward to it. I've told you before of a man I know that in order to help his his children appreciate the Lord's Day, they always got a special bar of chocolate on the Lord's Day. And since they weren't always given chocolate throughout the week, it was special. They looked forward to it. Was like this, it was like, this is the day to get the big bar of chocolate for themselves. And that's a simple way of, of kind of showing this day is significant and special and the children should look forward to it. Isaiah 58, the end of the chapter, you see... God is giving promises about guiding His people. Verse 11, satisfying their soul in drought, causing them to flourish. Verse 13, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, the idea is desecrating it, putting your foot on the neck of the Sabbath. That's, That's what they have been doing. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So the instruction given is again remember they, they were they were not keeping it now, now the Pharisees they, they they appear on the scene in the intertestamental period between the two Testaments old and New Testament and they begin to can kind of bring extra rules and regulations and strictly try to adhere and then they they multiply commandments to God's word in order to protect it even more and so they add more commandments to make it as it's like, here's the commandment, don't break the Sabbath day. Let's add these other commandments in so that you can't do that, right? So, so they added all these commandments in, almost like as, as a shell to protect the Lord's day, and they, they burdened everyone with that. But generally, the Jews were not in the habit of adhering to this commandment. Like all the other commandments, they, they tossed them aside. They, they manipulated them. They f- figured out ways to try and s- convince themselves they were Maintaining it and observing it while the whole time they were not. And so God is addressing this. He's calling them to stop desecrating, stop doing your pleasure, stop giving yourself to your things on my holy day. And He's looking for a shift of mentality. Call the Sabbath a delight the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor Him not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. Then, and I know why you to see this, you, you call the Sabbath a delight, and then there are certain things that are negative, let's say. They're, they're calling you away from it. You have your own ways. The things you do the other six days, the things that you're engaged in the rest of the week, Set them aside. Your own pleasure. Manipulating things, again, for your own advancement in this world, especially in business. Stop doing that. Speaking your own words, talking, discussing business matters and other frivolous matters, just giving yourself to your own things. You have to set that aside. The, the Sabbath of a delight. Pull away from these things. Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. In other words, you will be able to delight yourself in the Lord. You will find that you're more able to come and enjoy God, appreciate God, value what you have in your God. Part of your problem is you're so cluttered with all these other things going on, you've forgot how to delight in God. You come to one day in seven and it's a drudgery. It's like, oh, that day again. Oh, I we'll have to do that. And, and you try to figure out ways to manipulate everything so that you can carry on with your own industry and business. And in doing so, you rob your soul of a deep felt appreciation of who your God is and what He has done, and you can't delight in Him. And that's why it feels like a burden. And the counsel of the Spirit of God to the people of God is, stop, stop doing that. Take this counsel. Give up your own ways, your own pleasure, your own words. In other words, it's not about you, right? It's like, like, get yourself out of it. Get yourself out of the day. Make it about me. Make it about the Lord. Now, practically speaking, then we start asking ourselves, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? Does that mean... Does that, does that mean no sports on the Sabbath day? I ask, well, well ask yourself, is, is that you doing your own thing or is that you delighting in the Lord? I mean, you, take, you take the basic principle that's been instructed. The Lord's Day is, to, is, is a day which is to, again it's very, it's very, the very shadow of it is pointing to an eternal day being in the presence of God. Therefore, it is to, to function as an aid to give you a sense of heaven more than any other day of the week. Now, you say, I can worship God any day. I know you can worship God any day, but you're, you're busy. You're meant to be busy other days of the week. It's hard. You know, your your prayer times can be rushed and your, your time given to God can be rushed because they're just Pressing issues constantly upon your life. And much of our lives, much of it, it feels that way. Just constant pressure and trying to fit in our time with God six days of the week. And God's saying, yes, I, I understand that. I get it. One day, one day just pull back from everything and just enjoy me and what I have done for you. And what happens when you do that, when you give yourself to it, it actually sets you up. It puts you on a a, a a place where you can actually labor through that week and give yourself to the matters of that week and do so in the best frame of mind possible, generally speaking, all things being equal. But if you do what you do at other times, if you give yourself to 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 video games and to to and listen i 'm not about to, to get up i 'm going to try and pull back from from giving a list of do's and don'ts and trying to pull back. But I have to kind of make it practical about what goes on. Now obviously this is Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> you have to ask yourself, is this delighting in the Lord? Is it? Is it delighting in the Lord? Is it making much of this day to, to set me up for the rest of the week? We are instructed in the larger catechism, question 117. And again, think of it positively. In fact, I, mean, I was just reading through Exodus 20 this week and just, you know, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And then you have the first positive commandment remember the Sabbath day, it's positive. It's, it's framed positively. And so it should be in your mind as well, as a gift from God. Larger Catechism, question 117. How is the Sabbath of the Lord's Day to be sanctified? The Sabbath of the Lord's Day is to be sanctified, set apart, by an holy resting all the day. A holy resting. It's that... That doesn't mean you lie in your bed all day. You know, it's not, it's not just a resting. You so the Sabbath is to be kept by a resting, so I'll just lie in bed. No, it's a holy resting all the day. Not only from such works as are at all times sinful, obviously, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful. And making it our delight to spend the whole time except so much of it as to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy, in the public and private exercises of God's worship, and to that end we are to prepare our hearts, and with such foresight, diligence, and moderation, to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. Now, what what do we take from this? First of all, there's a practical side. There is a practical side. The latter part is encouraging us to, to have a sense of foresight and diligence and dispose of things that we can get done and get out of the way so we don't have to deal with it on that day. So it doesn't become a distraction from worship. And, and this is this is this is so it's practical. It means, you know, just making sure you've got gas in the car so you're not like rushing to church and realize I've no gas and I have to stop at the gas station and so on and so forth. It's it's like making preparations, same with, with other aspects. You see this from Exodus 16 with regard to the manna in which they're told to go and gather twice as much as they need so that there isn't a need to gather. I mean, they could have gathered. They could have done it. But God says, no, we're going to set aside that. There's no need for that. I'll let you gather two days' worth so that you're not cumbered with that aspect. And we can can take from that, and as I say, even how we prepare for the Lord's Day food-wise. It doesn't mean to say that we can't prepare food. There's been different aspects of how this has been dealt with. You go to some some of the Dutch circles, and you'll find that soup and sandwiches is normal on on the Lord's Day. Uh, In fact, you you come home from church, and if I know the, the real Dutch circles, as soon as you come home from church, you have coffee cake, and then, you know, the soup is being heated and sandwiches maybe I finally prepared, and then lunch is had at soup and sandwiches. That's what, that's what they do. It's just kind of in the culture. And I think some of that comes from the idea that that's easier to prepare than some, than some other meals. You go to Northern Ireland, of course, you've got this, this roast that takes lots of labor in preparing. and So it's different cultural things. But the point is this, that insofar as you're able, make sure these things aren't getting in the way of your worship even clothing, even travel as well. I remember wrestling with this <clears throat> as a believer with regard to travel. And uh, c- coming to this awareness, you know that th- this is, this is the day I'm called to worship. And if if I make it a day that I utilize... For convenience. What message am I communicating to God? What I mean is this. If you're away on vacation and you start back at work on Monday morning and you have to be back at work on Monday morning and you choose to make the day of travel the Lord's day, what are you saying about your valuing of work and worship? What is it that you're saying matters to you? Is there not undergirding that a sense that I can't miss work, but I can miss worship? Is is that not being implied by an action like that? Imagine you felt like I cannot, I cannot miss being gathered with the saints on the Lord's day. You change how you travel. You say I have to to be there. Just like you say I have to be at work 8 a.m. on Monday morning, I have to be there. Have to be there. You make it happen. You make it happen. But you see how worship can be seen sort of easily minimized, and we say it's not really that important. I have to be at work on Monday, but worship I can set aside. I'm just helping you think through these things, beloved. Think what? What? Why am I? Is this? Is this me delighting in God, or is this me? doing my own pleasure. It's common today to, of course, go out for meals and dine in restaurants. Fifty years ago didn't happen because the restaurants weren't open. But now it happens and... (laughs) In in free Presbyterian circles, at least in Northern Ireland, we haven't got to the stage. I'm sure there's decline. I'm sure there is. So when I left, we hadn't got to the stage where someone might say to you, can I take you out to a restaurant after the morning service? I mean, we haven't, it hasn't gotten to that point yet, at least, and may God ever spare it. But I went to Calgary, and I'm visiting there just three Sundays, and I can't remember which Sunday it was, but I'm a visitor, and one of the men says to me, my wife's out of town. I'd like to take you for, for, for dinner today. For lunch, um, do you have any plans? Let me take you for lunch. <laughs> and I'm I'm like you know how do I like not offend this person I've only just met, and they uh, just fly out and say I don't do restaurants on a Sunday or or how do I? And my mind is kind of racing at that point. And I said, well look, I, I've I've steak that I bought for myself. Uh, there's more than enough to share. I said, if you've if you've got some things that you can add to it, I think we could we could enjoy that together instead. I said, sure, I can make up, I can make some rice and, and vegetables, and I said, okay, I'll go and grab the meat. And I went over to his house, cooked the meat, had rice and vegetables, <laughs> and I didn't, you know, because I, I didn't know where this guy was coming from, I had no idea, but I, I wanted to be polite. But you figure it another way around it. Now there comes a time, obviously, where you would just be blunt with someone. You would tell them but I, I just sensed that that maybe wasn't the right moment for it. I think we have to see this. We have to avoid that, that what's going on today is a, is a real problem. And Christians have to, 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 to ask themselves, why, why am I at a restaurant on the Lord's Day? What does the commandment say? Go back to Exodus 20, just just so you see it. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, to keep it distinct, keep it separate, sanctify it. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. It's God. He set it apart, and you're to respect that and recognize that. In it thou shalt do, in it thou shalt not do any work. Right? So you step aside from your labor. But it's not just you. Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. In other words, everyone under your jurisdiction, you you have no right to call them, to work for you. Now, what happens when you go to a restaurant? You call them a server. In one sense, you're hiring their service for, for that little period of time. You're hiring them. They're becoming a, a servant to you of, of sorts. For that, there's a, a certain kind of unspoken contract of what's going on there. I walk in, you're going to serve me my dinner, and I, I will give you an exchange for that money. You're, you're paying for them. You're, you're making a servant work in an area I would say is not necessary. Now, there are other practical implications of this. We, by, by sustaining and upholding this system, this whole economy, we are keeping people out of the house of God. And it always boggles me how Christians can't see the inconsistency when we want people to be in God's house and to be right with God when we, when we support and finance an industry that keeps them out of the house of God. Gives them a reason not to be there. As I say, the folks in Calgary, I say, I want want you to think about your interaction with, with, uh, with the world in relation to, imagine there was revival. What would happen if there was revival? National revival. What would happen? Well, everyone would run to the house of God. Like, everyone would be there. And so the business owners would be there, and they would close up shop, and they would say that their employees should be there. And everyone then would be called in to the house of God. Now, I want you to see how society would change. Would the restaurants be open? No. Would all these other industries, many of them, would, would they be open? No. They would just they would cave in overnight. They would shut. Like a revival in, in Northern Ireland in 1859. The the, the bars began to shut because there was no business. The distilleries began to close down because there was no, no business anymore. When people get right with God, it changes things. Now, as a consistent Christian then, you want to support that vision. You want to support it. And that means you avoid upholding it. So I just want you to think about Think about food, think about travel, think about am I doing my delight? Am I doing my own pleasure? Am I, am I delighting in the Lord in this? Am I showing Him due reverence? So there's a practical side. There's also a spiritual side. The purpose of, of setting aside the work isn't to do nothing. And we looked... You know, you see it there. What are we to do? Set aside the worldly employments and recreations that on other days are lawful. Making it our delight to spend the whole time except so much of it as is to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy in the public and private exercises of God's worship. Now, that, that's very tight language and there's been debate over the years just, just how strictly should this be exemplified or practiced. But without trying to make it, tie it into knots, just this idea that there's a spiritual side. I'm called aside to worship God. I'm being pulled away from my normal labor to worship God and to give the whole day. I've told you before, I've been on vacation at times and the best church I can find only has a morning service. And I've always found it the most frustrating experience and the least profitable way to spend the Lord's Day. Because I go in the morning and I come back, you're done by whatever time, say one o'clock or so. You have lunch and then you've this <laughs> from like say two until nine or ten p.m. You're like, so so what now? <laughs> I mean, obviously you can read or you can do a certain amount, but it's very difficult for the children. And so, having even how we structure, how our forefathers structured a morning and evening sacrifice, a morning and evening worship, helps us fill up that day with a focus upon what we're meant to be focused upon God and His gospel. You read Psalm 92, I'm not going to turn there, but you see it's a Sabbath, a psalm for the Sabbath. And you can see all the characteristics of of the the joy and celebration and hope that there is in God's people over this day. And it's to permeate into our homes as well. When you read Leviticus 23, verse 3, it says, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest and holy convocation, a holy gathering together. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. It reaches into the home. In other words, it doesn't end when you leave this building. It's still the Lord's day when you leave here. So maintain a consistency about your approach, which is what the catechism is encouraging. Finally, there's a relational side as well. There's a relational side. We are not to be isolated. It's not saying, cut yourself off and go be alone with God, never talk to anybody. (laughs) We, We are to be hospitable. We are to be with the Lord's people, actually enjoying being with the Lord's people. I pointed that out in Luke 14, verse 1, when Jesus went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees, to eat bread on the Sabbath day. He joined with him in a context of fellowship. That's a good way to use the day. Invite people over for dinner. Reciprocate. Hospitality. Enjoy time with one another. Talk about the Lord positively. Encourage each other in the things of God. Malachi 3.16 Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before Him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon His name. The Lord's day is a great day to fulfill that text. To be with the Lord's people and the Lord's heartening to those who speak often one to another. Every Lord's day they speak to one another and a book of remembrance was written before Him for them that feared the Lord and thought upon His name. Hospitality is encouraged. Ministry is permissible. It's permissible. I would say don't regularly miss corporate worship for any ministry. Because you need to pour out, you need to pour in. But if you can go and minister in a senior's home or like we do in generations regularly in the Lord's Day, that's all permissible. It's it's an act of mercy. And so we ask, well, what are acts of necessity and mercy? What are they? How do I gauge that when it's talking about things that are necessary or merciful? They are works which cannot be avoided or should not be avoided. All right, you just just think through this. Can this be avoided or should it be avoided? There's someone in need of help. Should, Should I avoid them and ignore them? No. If you missed church one Sunday because someone was stuck at the side of the road and needing help, you saw someone and everyone's passing by, and I'd have no problem with that. You didn't desecrate the Lord's Day by helping that person who couldn't change a tire. And even even take that illustration of changing a tire. I I, I need to ch- the, you go outside, the tire's flat, and you ask yourself, is this breaking the Sabbath to replace it so I can get the church? No, no. But if there's a scrape on the paintwork, don't, don't, you don't have to touch up the paint. You don't have to leave that to another day. It'll be fine. You can still get, do everything you need to do. Replace the tire, fix the engine, but don't touch up the paintwork. I mean, most of this should be common sense. Also doctors, are you telling me that doctors can't do the work? Of course they can. They have to be in the hospital. People die if they're not there. What well, about law enforcement. Well, the crime doesn't stop in the Lord's day. Someone needs to be out there making sure people are afraid. So that it doesn't, it's not hard to figure this out, but don't look for ways to excuse yourself from doing your own pleasure instead of delighting in your God. I mean, ask yourself, Christ on the cross Did he just dispense of the fourth commandment? Or did he suffer for the sins of fourth commandment breakers? Because you can't have both. We're lawbreakers. We break the Lord's Day. We break the Sabbath day. We don't keep it as we should. And that's why we need it's another reason why we run to Christ. Because He is He is made sin for us. Our sins are laid on Him, including our regular breaches of observing one day in seven. But He shed His blood for such sins. He didn't just dismiss it and make nothing of it. So, I encourage you, beloved, with all my heart, I encourage you to see that there remains a keeping of Sabbath. And if you embrace it and hold on to it, it will actually sustain your laboring to enter into that rest. The people most likely to backslide and drop off, there will be a pattern. They start to miss being at God's house. They're not there. They're not keeping His day. Before you know it, it's just a manifestation of the fact that they aren't holding on to Christ. It's not infallible. In fact, you're here. The fact that you say, I'll try to maintain the Lord's Day is not an infallible reflection of the fact that you're truly resting in Christ. But it is one evidence. And you young people, especially in this generation, when it's so. when you don't remember. I'm old enough to remember the quieter Sundays. I'm old enough to remember that. You don't. You've never known Best Buy being closed. You've never never known that. You've never known it when the malls, they're all shut. You can't get in there on a Sunday. And so you're, you're kind of shaped and molded by this. Resist it. Resist it. It will do your soul much good. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. My exhortations to you, child of God, are are simply, number one, obviously trying to be faithful to God and delivering you His Word, but also just a practical concern for your soul. There is so much spiritual weakness in the church today, and and this, this is part of it. We've made a God out of our own time and we've said, I'm going to have, God can have an hour and a half, maybe, out of my week, but He's not having a whole day. You don't bargain with God and get away with it. You don't negotiate with God and benefit from it. Lord, we pray for grace. Wean us off the influences of our current world give us such a high value of Jesus Christ that to spend a day would be almost too brief for us give us a an increasing anticipation of the eternal day a longing to be in the presence of God where there's no sin to mar or cause any sorrow and may May every Lord's Day in this place be be a means of, of equipping and strengthening the work of grace in each heart, that each one here would be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. So encourage us, give us humility as we receive and think upon your word. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all your people now and evermore. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.